Welcome to Something Wicked, where each episode we discuss topics on true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This episode, we're covering someone that has been a slight obsession of mine for many years, Countess Urshabet Battery. Also known as the female Dracula, we are covering every nook and cranny of this woman's life, from her birth to her horrific crimes, even our own take on a theory that she may have been framed. A bit of a twist from the legends you've heard. So get comfy, pop some corn, and join us as we explore the haunted history of the Blood Countess. Enjoy. Hello, my lovelies. We are back. After a bit of a hiatus, so, so sorry about that. Life kind of got hectic for a little bit. We are here to dive back into all the wonderful, spoopy, and gruesome stories that you love. As we said in the intro, we are covering Urshbet Bathory. I know some of you that have heard of her know her as Elizabeth Bathory, but I'm going with the original pronunciation of her name, so same person, just using her actual name for the episode. Starting out with a little fun tidbit, on the Bathory family, the lineage itself goes back to 1310. The surname Bathory itself means good hero, which is ironic as hell when you find out how fucked up her family and herself really are. The name comes from the family legend stemming back to the year 900 when Vitus Bathory had slain a dragon that was wreaking havoc in the countryside and was rewarded with the surname as well as Ekshed Castle, which wasn't actually built until the 1300s. (laughs) Makes me wonder, though, like you you were saying a little bit um, before, like earlier, was what he actually did to earn that. Yeah, like, what was the actual story behind that, and why is it shrouded in this legend of friggin' year 900, I slayed slayed a dragon. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) what did you actually do to earn that castle? I bet you it wasn't good. Yeah, no, true. (laughs) I haven't found anything on it, though, so we're just gonna... It was probably some political game thing that they swept under the rug and tried to, like, hide. Yeah, which again, later on in the episode, it, it would make more sense once you hear yeah. more of it. Um, <laughs> getting back to it, the family coat of arms featured three bared dragon teeth on a blood red and white background in reference to the family legend. Urchbet herself was born on August 7th, 1560 at her family estate in Nürbatur in the East Kingdom of Hungary, 146 miles from Budapest, to parents Anna of the Somlio branch of the family and her father, Baron George VI, from the Ekshed branch of the family. It doesn't specify how the two were related, but I'm guessing cousins at least. Yay, (laughs) inbreeding! Well, that should explain a lot right there. Yeah. Urchbet spent her childhood in Ekshed Castle after her father inherited the property, uh, now known as Nagikshed, or the Great Ekshed, that sits in the northern Great Plain region of eastern Hungary near the modern border of Romania. She was raised in the Calvinist Protestant faith. Now, the difference with Calvinism versus other Protestant faiths is that It is a denomination that adheres to the theological traditions and teachings of John Calvin and other preachers of the Reformation era. Calvinists broke from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, specifically 1519, with the first version of the Reformed Doctrine, having different beliefs of predestination and election of salvation, among others. 
With the predestination and election of salvation, John Calvin believed that salvation was only possible through the grace of God and that God had, in fact, before creation, already picked out the people that were going to be saved. So basically, he hated the Catholic idea that salvation could be achieved through works and would tell people that you could not manipulate God or put him in your debt. If you're saved, it's because he already picked you. And if you weren't picked, you're fucked. Like, even Jesus so, no dying... No matter what, yeah. you're fucked in this. Like, you're, choosed or you're chosen or you're not chosen. Yeah, no, he even said, like, Jesus dying on the cross had zero impact on you if you weren't left to the magic Sky Daddy Club. Like, what? <laughs> like, freaking... Like, if, yeah, if you weren't one of the names he picked out of the damn hat, like, doesn't matter what you do with your life. You're going to hell. Could be like, the best yeah. fucking person in yeah. the whole goddamn world. Yeah. And he's still going to hell. Yeah. <laughs> so, moving on rather quickly, this is the belief system that was impressed on Archbet's upbringing. She was also well-educated, as was appropriate for a young noble noblewoman from a prominent family. From a young age, she had mastered the languages of her native Hungarian, as well as Latin, German, and Greek, and was seen as an intelligent and headstrong child. Throughout her childhood, however, she suffered seizures and headaches due to epilepsy, which was inherent through almost all of the Battery family line, which, again, with the inbreeding... <laughs> I was gonna say, I wonder not, why. <laughs> yeah, not fucking surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists and scholars were only just acknowledging that epilepsy was a physical illness and not as a sign of madness or moral or occult affliction. So it was on the hush-hush, especially with the status of the family name, Fun fact, the number one treatment for epileptic seizures at the time was to take the blood from an unafflicted person and rub it on the lips of the person having the seizure, and they thought it would just presto changeo the sufferer's condition. What the fuck? Who thought that shit up and how many drugs were you on? Like, I Jesus don't Christ. Know. Like, can you imagine one of the doctors going, I need your blood so we can save the child? <laughs> Hurry up! Fucking cut yourself somewhere and give me your blood. What? Jesus. What? <laughs> Excuse me? Oh my god. Like, the they had the fuck? most insane ass methods back then. Like, I know they were trying someday. to find things, but come on. No, someday we need to cover all that shit, because oh my god. That yeah. should be another episode. Yeah, like, the most insane fucking methods that were used in medieval times, oh or just throughout god. history in general. Dude, we could probably do a whole episode on just the Renaissance era. God, I know. Ugh. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jesus. Growing up in the Renaissance era, Erkspet's life was a giant ass ball of contradiction. On one hand, she was raised in the Renaissance style education as befitted a woman, so history, art, poetry, ethics, and for the upper class girls, marrying as young as possible to carry on the family bloodline and form alliances. Oh, man. She also had the issue of science not understanding her epilepsy, so no reprieve from that either. Her family had taken up a relatively new branch of Protestant faith that was in constant battle with the power of the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. She was expected to assimilate to the Gentile idea of fem ugh, feminine. Oh God, Jesus! Femininity. Thank you. There I we feel go. like fucking Nemo. With what do you live in? An anemone. Anemone. But yeah, the Gentile idea of that. The femininity. <laughs> 
but was continuously exposed to the gruesome medieval punishment, war, and violence. And as a noblewoman would have had that exposure at home as well with the treatment of the servants and those in the lower caste. She was pretty much desensitized to any form of mistreatment, such as whipping when someone didn't fall in line, limbs being cut off for theft, women that were accused of witchcraft or unwomanly behavior were oh drowned God. or burned at the stake. Much very common punishments for everybody at the time, except for the noble class, yeah. Yeah, which I, I also wonder what they considered unwomanly behavior. Oh, God, probably talking back. Or anything existing. Speaking out of turn. <laughs> the be seen, not heard. Yeah. <laughs> the most vicious punishments, however, that were designed to kill and cause maximum pain doing so were reserved for those charged with treason. And you're about to find out why I can completely understand that the those accused of being a traitor in the Middle Ages were absolutely terrified. 46 years before Urshbet was born, during the Doja Rebellion, the peasants were brutally suppressed and their leader, Yorgi Doja, got the worst of it. He was forced to sit on a burning throne wearing a heated iron crown holding a cherry red iron scepter. He had to watch his little brother get chopped to death while enduring hot pliers being forced into his skin to peel it off Ugh. and finally having his skin eaten by other rebels who faced a brutal death if they refused and then he died. Ugh. So basically he got tortured, burned repeatedly, peeled, and then fed to his comrades. Yeah. For leading a rebellion. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The lesser crimes in the land were dealt with at the local level, mostly by landlords, meaning that the Battery family were both responsible for and exposed to the violence of the punishments. Now, her family was stupid powerful in the 16th and 17th century in Hungary and Poland. Along with her parents being the Baron and Baroness, her uncle Andrew on her father's side was the Voivoda, which is the highest ranking official in Romania, as well as the Chief Justice of Hungary. More fun facts. Speaking of the title of Voivoda, did you know that there was no official monarchy in Romania? Wow. Like, at all. So Vlad Tepes, or Dracula, as we know him, who we will be covering in another episode because definitely have to. Yeah. Was he ever really a prince? Then it was just like a title given to the Voivoda or highest ranking official at the time. So he was never Prince Vlad Dracul. He was just Voivoda. Oh yeah. It's I, Which I, I never mean is ideally like the same thing, but not in the monarchy sense. Yeah. It's still It's just a title. Yeah, it's just a title. Yeah. Getting back to the batteries, Erzbet's uncle on her mother's side, Stefan, married the Queen of Poland, making him the famous Polish king Stefan Battery in fifteen seventy five, along with the titles of Grand Duke of Lithuania, of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Prince of Transylvania. In fact, several members of the Batchery family held the title Prince of Transylvania throughout and after Urshbet's timeline, including two of her cousin, uh, cousins, Sigismund and Gabrielle. Sigismund, what yeah. a good name. <laughs> <laughs> the Batchery family owned land in the Kingdom of Hungary, um, now just known as Hungary, in Slovakia and Romania. They were also ridiculously rich and would often lend money to other influential families, including the Habsburgs of Austria. 
it may sound like I'm sidetracking, but I promise you I'm not. <laughs> all of this has to do with the story and, like, what leads up to all our crimes and shit. That, um, and the fact that I'm a whore for history, so I can't help myself. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Love ya. Anyway, the Habsburgs were one of the most prominent royal families in medieval and early modern Europe, with a dynasty that lasted for 636 years, from 1282 to 1918. Wow. Yeah. The core land for their family was in Vienna, Austria, but in Erkschmidt's time, the seat was moved to Prague in, from 1583 to 1611. Their house produced kings of several countries, including Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, Galatia, Lod Lodomera, Spain, and Portugal, and their respective colonies. Later in history, they also claimed several principalities in, in Italy and Low Countries, as well as the 19th century emperors of Austria, Austria-Hungary, and an emperor of Mexico, which an I... emperor of Mexico. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how the political system works in Mexico, or yeah, how it either. did when they were in power, but I had no idea that Mexico had emperors. Yeah. <laughs> the Habsburgs expanded their family either through war or fortuitous marriages, but split into several branches. Most noted in the 16th century when the Spanish and Austrian branches were divided after Charles V abdicated the throne. Oh. Yeah. This strategy of marriages, however, that they adopted for generations led to decline in the gene pool, resulting in disabilities and deformities, including the infamous Habsburg jaw. Like, you ever see those Renaissance paintings with the people that look like they're chipmunking a beach ball under their tongue or just like a stunt double for the crimson chin from the <laughs> Fairly Odd Parents? Like, like yeah. Crimson chin. <laughs> yeah, because that's because of the snooty ass bitchy family. Like, <laughs> it's a Habsburg thing. <laughs> you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, like, they look so, those paintings look so weird. I don't think I've ever actually seen one. Oh like, god, I'll have to show you after this. Yeah. It's like it's it looks so ridiculous. But the family <laughs> sorry <laughs> reached their pinnacle during Urchbet's lifetime, holding the title of Holy Roman Emperor from fourteen thirty eight to eighteen oh six, with a small gap from seventeen forty to seventeen forty five. So they so were like a five year gap in fucking hundreds of years. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So yeah, they were the most powerful royal family ruling over the most powerful state in Europe in the Middle Ages. And they had to borrow money from the batteries to keep things afloat. This should tell you how stupid powerful Urshbet's family was. Wow. The fact that they had like this whole dominion over 600 plus years. Yeah. And, and they had the biggest royal family owing them a crap ton of debts. Yeah. So even though the Habsburgs held position for centuries, the Holy Roman Emperor was an elected position, only put into power by the elites, the prince-elects. They did have the advantage, though, with their land, making up a huge portion of the Holy Roman Empire, which encompassed modern-day Germany, Austria, Czechia, Switzerland, the Low Countries, Slovenia, parts of eastern France, northern Italy, western Poland, and northern Croatia. So, like, that whole mass of land. What are the Low Countries? What does that mean? <sighs> I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing somewhere, like... If, correct me if I'm wrong, I may sound dumb, but, like, maybe Sicily, 
Maybe. Like, the Mediterranean? I have no idea. We'll have to look into that, because I want to know what they keep referring to when they say the Low Countries. Yeah, I mean, it is a Holy Roman Empire, so... Yeah. It comes from fucking Italy, first off. <laughs> <laughs> With the Empire seeing themselves as this all-powerful world domination type, along with the Habsburg family, Hungarian nobility, like the Batteries, were made to deal with the capriciousness of these neighbors in the West. And after 1453, they developed enemies to the east as well. They were surrounded by dangerous and powerful neighbors. The power of the Habsburgs, as well as attacks from the Ottoman Turks in the 16th century, this would dramatically impact the domestic events in Hungary and in conclusion had immense personal consequences for Urshbet's life. See? It's all coming together. Getting behind the reasons the hamster wheel of torture for funsies developed in her head. <laughs> yeah, alright. It's starting to make a bit of sense. In 1490, Hungarian King Matthias, known as Matthias the Just, died and left Hungary in a state of decline. In 1453, the Turks brought an end to the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, protector of the Orthodox Catholic faith and the whole region around the Balkans with their takeover of Constant... Uh, Con yeah, sorry, again, with words today. Constantinople. <clears throat> I mean, to be fair, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> words are hard. <laughs> King Matthias had created an army he deemed the Black Army and result for, of this to keep Hungary strong, but the progress he made with this came to a halt with his death. His successors were selected by a national assembly of important nobles known as a Diet, and their preference for a weak, malleable king for his replacement gave the Turkish ruler Suleiman the Magnificent to seize part of Hungary after his victory at Moax in 1526. When the city of Buda was raised to the ground and the Hungarians appointed dumbass, Uzlazo II was killed in battle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because Pointed dumbass. Yeah, because they pretty much were like, you know what? The old king we couldn't do anything about. He was too headstrong. We need somebody that's like really fucking dumb. Yeah. That if we he was dumb as a box of rocks, will. we can throw you at things and oh shit, it died. <laughs> Throwing waves and waves of my own men after them. <laughs> God damn Bitch, it. he was too stupid. He died immediately. <laughs> throne <laughs> fucking shit Tori. oh my god the throne was then fought over between ferdinand the first archduke of austria and later holy roman emperor who wanted to claim hungary for the habsburg empire and janos zapulia voivoda of transylvania and commander of what remained of hungary's army the Archduke re uh, relied on his aristocratic connections. He, after all, was the brother-in-law of the previous king and brother to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. <laughs> wow. The problem, however, laid in the two branches of the Battery family. Anna's side of the family supported the Voivoda, while George VI's side supported the Archduke, and both ended up getting elected as king by the rival factions. <laughs> Ooh. And George swapped sides, more than likely due to the rising power of King Stefan, his wife's brother. The Habsburgs, in response, stripped George of his castle, uh, Bujak, I think that's how you pronounce it, and so he cemented, <laughs> <laughs> so he cemented, 
his alliance by marrying Anna. So now both sides were united, but this ended up pissing off the Habsburgs for a long time. Like, they had this undying grudge against them forever. Oh my god, you also have undying debt. Yeah. (laughs) Shut the hell up and pay it back. (laughs) The Voivoda ended up ruling in Hungary through through uprisings, the capture of Buda, and the seizure of Western Hungary by the Archduke, who made an alliance with the Turks, because fuck the batteries, that's why. (laughs) After the death of the Voivoda, the political system then broke the country. Good job, guys. You fucking broke it. (laughs) It was split three ways. The Habsburg Royal Hungary, which bordered Austria in the west. The Ottoman Hungary, that was central and southern Hungary. And the semi-independent principality of Transylvania in the east. Erchbet was born in the east, where the princes ruled as feudal tenants under either the Ottoman Sultan or the Habsburgs and she was impacted by both conflicts against the Turks and by the Habsburgs who ruled part and later all of Hungary until 1918. Wow. Yeah. That went on for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Transylvania, however, where the batteries ruled over most of, remained prosperous despite the tempestuous factors. The princes had their power guaranteed by a constitution and were seen as representatives of the three historic nations, the Hungarians, the Saxons, and the Hungarian-speaking settlers. They were also spared the religious trifles, even though caught between the Muslim Turks and the Catholic Habsburgs, because the princes often endorsed religious tolerance. Besides King Stefan, who was still notably Catholic, the nobility remained Calvinist Protestants. With the Edict of Torda in 1568 came religious freedom to the Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Calvinist, and Unitarian churches, excluding the Greek Orthodox faith of the Vlach nation of Romania. This document was the first set-in-stone guarantee of religious freedom in a Christian Europe. Then the royal house of Batri came into power when Stefan ruled as Voivoda in 1576, first under Ottoman then Habsburg scrutiny. During their reign, the Principality of Transylvania became semi-independent with independence outside of foreign affairs controlled by its neighbors. Now enter the Long Turkish War from 1593 to 1606 under the reign of Sigismund Bathory, who was the prince several times of Transylvania between 1586 to 1602. Hey, it's Sigismund again! (laughs) This war was only part of the Ottoman-Habsburg War that lasted in a total of two centuries between 1526 to 1791, where the country formed a part Christian alliance against the Turks, but also divided into a four-way struggle between the Habsburgs, the Ottomans, Wallachia, a southern region of Romania, with Transylvania in decline for a short period while under the rule of Rudolf I after 1601, who tried to Germanize population and bring back Catholicism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this whole, this whole thing is just like all sorts of fucking wibbly-wobbly. Yeah, there's a lot of fucking chaos. (laughs) Then, led by Hungarian nobleman Stefan Bakshke, a rebellion against the Habsburgs uh, gave Transylvania back their power, but the religious and martial tensions between the Habsburgs and Transylvania were far from over. In response to this, to further their family's influence, Urchbit's hand was given to Count Fer- uh, Ferenik, yeah, Ferenik II Nadashti, 
when she turned 10 and as is tradition moved to castle sarvar to live with her future husband in west hungary near the austrian border known as nadishti castle in the beginnings of her teenage years while at her new home rumors started to spread of her having relations with a boy of the lower caste and giving birth to a baby girl with him this supposed child was given to the care of a trusted pauper woman known to the Bathory family and never spoken of again. When the Count found out this rumor, it was said that he had the boy found, castrated, and given to a pack of hungry dogs to be eaten alive. Oh my god. Yeah. The bastard child also possibly was said to be murdered under the order of the Count. No. Which, with the kind of man he was, does not shock me in the slightest if this ever turned out to be true. Was that the the one she was supposed to be married to? Yeah. Oh my god. Yep. This rumor was, however, brought into question when letters arose about Urchbit's devoted chastity to that of her husband later in life when he went to war. Again, if it were true, just proves the kind of power the Battery family held by remaining steadfast through the Union even after the danger of Urchbrit's ruined reputation. So, going with that, basically, from that era, like, up until... <sighs> fuck, I'm gonna say, like, the end of the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. Women in the upper class, it's... You were not allowed to be with a man alone. You were not allowed to have babies out of wedlock. You weren't even allowed to, like, hold hands wow. with a man you weren't betrothed to. Or anything like that, because it would completely obliterate your reputation and social status and that of the rest of the family line under you. Oh my goodness. Like, if you had any little sisters or anything like that, and you were caught doing something like that, all of them would be shunned in the eyes of society. They'd all be considered, like, sisters of the whore. You know. Jeez. Yeah, so it was, like, bad to have something like that to be accused of having a child out of wedlock while you're betrothed to another yeah. in the upper class. It's ridiculous. So, getting back to it again, sorry. On May 8th, 1575, when Urchbet was 15, she married the Count in the palace of Vranov Nataplu, which resides in the eastern uh, portion of Slovakia today. The marriage was purely political in an attempt to form an alliance between two old and influential aristocratic families. Urchbet kept the reputation and influence of her family by keeping her maiden name purely because of the fact that the name Battery held higher standing in society than that of the Nadishti family. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, honey, I'm not taking your last name because mine is better. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm more important than you, bitch. <laughs> She had had their first child 10 years after their marriage, so when she was, like, 25, and had four more after that. Two of her children died before reaching adulthood, but three survived. Anna, Kathleen, and Paul. They were, as their mother was, raised by a governess. She did this because she spent most of her time as a wife managing her husband's affairs and estate while he was away as a commander of the Hungarian troops in the Ottoman Habsburg Wars. Another war that Transylvania became involved in when it renounced its vassalship to the Ottomans in a bid for full independence. Oh, man. Yeah, so war is within war is within war. Jesus Christ. When the Count... Warception. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. How did I know you were going to say that? God damn it, Tori. Because if I can't have perception at the end of, like, anything. <laughs> 
When the Count left in 1578 and didn't come back for several years, Urchbet was left to handle the full affairs of the estate, and apparently she was phenomenal at this. She had to defend the estates uh, on route to Vienna, provide medical care across the region, and help the women who had lost their husbands and therefore their financial security during the war. So she was doing all this, like, humanitarian work. Oh. Well, he was at the war and like basically being a boss at home taking care of everything completely going above the status of women in that time during this time the best way to determine the morale of the locals towards their landlords came in the form of grievance letters whether they were complaints of petty theft or assault accusations these were often delivered to many landlords at the time. However, there has been no evidence of any letters being delivered to Urchbet, neither hinting at the torture she supposedly inflicted on the local girls, nor over minor issues such as manorial taxes paid to the Battery family, which suggests that the tenants under Urchbet's role were content with her. Wow. Yes, and again comes into play later on why I brought up the thing in the intro about possibility of her being framed and yeah. other shit like that. It's it, it makes more and more sense as you go on of what happens with her versus like what I've heard in her what legends. Story yeah. Legends are, yeah. So yeah, it's really it gets really fucking fascinating. <laughs> While away at the war, the Count built a reputation for effective command and fearless bravery assisting in the seizure of several Ottoman-held castles, including Esdragom on the banks of, Dan of the Danube, northwest of Budapest in 1595. He was also known for his extreme cruelty of the Ottoman POWs, with some outlining his obscene defilement of the corpses after dying from torture. He even played catch with their severed heads. Oh. Oh, yeah, no. like he would get his soldier buddies together and go go long, like with their fucking heads. Like <laughs> what we're the gonna hell? play some touch football now. Whoa. <laughs> the violent treatment of captured enemies, especially non-Christians, was very common at this time. The count would often adopt the method of death on the battlefield, made famous by Vlad Tepish or Vlad the Impaler, by impaling his enemies on pikes, letting them bleed slowly to death in agony. These atrocities earned him another reputation with a new nickname that struck fear into the opposing soldiers, the Black Knight of Hungary. Upon his return, it is one assumption that the reason Urshbet got a taste for torture is due to the fact that the Count taught his brutal methods to his wife and advised her to carry out these acts of torture and mistreatment on the servants of the household, including slathering one of the young maids with honey, strip her bare, and tie her to a post outside to be bitten by ants, spiders, wasps, and put lit oiled paper between her toes. Although these acts were said to be inspired by her husband, the accusations didn't actually come into light until after her husband's death. The story of how Urshbet treated her servants wouldn't be that far-fetched, though, due to the fact that the relationship between masters and their servants at the time was riddled with violence. So, the origin story of what later became legend, we will get to that, of her striking a servant because they tugged her on her hair too hard while brushing it isn't really that surprising. If it's true. Yeah. That was common to lash out for things like that. Yeah. As a noble, she had every legal right to treat her servants and the peasants as she so desired. 
Even if she were to murder one of them, she would only be slapped with a fine as compensation for the loss to the victim's family. So it wasn't until the death of a noble child under her care did the justice system hold her responsible. <laughs> it's not to say that the cruelty she showed toward her female servants was false, it's just due to lack of evidence and a blind eye for people the higher-ups considered less than. Yeah. So, stories started to arise that Urshbet developed a bit of schadenfreude fetish, meaning she delighted in the pain and misfortune of others. And when her husband returned from war with the gift of his black claw, reminiscent of a dragon's claw, so basically it was like just an iron claw that you wore on your hand, <sighs> uh, she turned into a five-year-old who got Hulk hand mitts for Christmas and strapped it to her hands to claw the skin off her victims. Whoa. Yeah, she also enjoyed pushing burning hot needles under the nails of her poorest servants and responded to what she considered laziness with more physical violence, such as breaking the arm of one of her servants. Wow. Yeah, and here comes the ridiculousness, because if that wasn't enough. Because it was thought at the time that it was physically and mentally impossible for a woman to commit such heinous acts alone, her connections came into question. There were rumors of her being taught witchcraft and Satanism at a young age from her family. She was not charged with this when she was arrested, however, but for torture and murder. One woman in particular was said to be the puppet master to Urshbet, a handmaiden named Anna Davulia. Known as Dar Darvulia, she had been longtime servant of the Nadishti family for many years before rising up the ranks to eventually become Urshbet's confidant in 1601. She was now the head accused of teaching Urchbet methods of cruelty, not the Count, and instructed the other servants on how to best serve their mistress in her torture sessions with the peasant girls. <laughs> the servants had even made claims that when Darvulia arrived, quote, the lady herself became crueler and crueler, end quote. It was at this time in the early 1600s, Count's health began rapidly declining, that Urchbet began her abduction of young girls of the lower caste to join her gynoseum. This term originated in ancient Greece as a place where women spent the majority of their married lives in private, providing a completely separate area for, away from the men, to gather together with the other women of the household to do chores, leisure activities, and learn important womanly crafts. Hmm. Yeah, so they, they did that, like, way back then. They had this whole separate wing of the house. That they just lived in for the majority of their married lives with their handmaidens and... So kind of like a woman's version of a man cave. It's just a whole wing instead of a stupid little room. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If Something Wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please go to glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening!
in 16th century Hungary, gynosiums, or women's quarters, like you said, were designed not only for the women of the household to gather, but also for unmarried young women who came to learn courtly etiquette, dance steps to attract a respectable husband, learn to manage a grand household, and practice foreign languages. This was especially important in Hungary that sat in the middle of a powerful of powerful neighbors where the matches would require fluency and the very least German and Hungarian. They also practiced needlecraft, playing instruments, and engage in other leisurely activities. So Urchbet, who had already mastered at least four languages and married a highly respectable man in her youth, would have been viewed as the ideal candidate to impart her knowledge onto the women of the lesser gentry. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> Teach me your ways, madam. <laughs> Except torture, I don't care for that. <laughs> so maybe. No. No, maybe. No, <laughs> not there yet? Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> Urchbet's gynoseum, however, had an additional function. Murder. 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 <laughs> Well, as was the rumor of her luring the girls there to torture them to death. Growing bored with picking on her servants and peasants, she decided to kick it up a notch and turn her kinks onto the daughters of lower nobles with the promise of social advancement. Ugh. Yeah. What made the locals suspicious eventually was the number of deaths rising in the girls under her care. Stories of cruelty, including starvation, strange injuries, and disappearances plagued the gynoseum. When several of the girls died, Urchbet claimed that it had been a cholera outbreak, but the suspicious number of bodies brought to the local churchyard for burial, where the priests were called to attend, made an investigation into the matter inevitable. While the Count was alive, she was shielded from these accusations, but when he died on January 4th, 1604, it became a bit of an issue. <laughs> they were married for 29 years and towards the end he had been suffering from debilitating pain in his leg from i'm guessing his time in the war probably and became permanently disabled in 1603 although the exact cause of death is unknown mm. uh. funny enough <laughs> after his death urshbet went against tradition of secluding herself from the public for a year of mourning for her husband and she decided to go on a shopping spree in Vienna, buying all the fineries for her and her servants, then returned home and became a public figure in the anti-Habsburg politics and tried to collect debts for six years owned, uh, owed to her husband and herself from the Vienna court. I mean, and probably from the Habsburgs. Yeah, but unknown causes. Yeah. Bullshit. <laughs> I call bullshit. I was like, oh my god, my husband's dead. Oh no, shopping spree! Shopping. Shoes. <laughs> oh, let's get some shoes. <laughs> oh, meanwhile, meanwhile, she and her husband's heirs had been placed under the care of Yorgi Torzo as per instruction of her dying husband. Yorgi Torzo was a powerful Hungarian magnate um, in Palatine of Hungary, which made him the representative of the monarch from 1609 to 1616. And despite being responsible for the care of Archbet and her children, it was he who led the investigation of her crimes. <laughs> yeah. I might need to take care of you, but also, uh, you're kind of suspicious. <laughs> and we need to get to the bottom of this shit, because, uh, Oh, oh no, no, yeah. You'll, trust me, you'll start leaning more towards her favor, even though she's like 
fucking vicious, but anyway. Yeah. Urshbet had been left to manage the family's money and lands as her son was still an infant, which made her an ideal target. Oh. 1602 was when the rumors began to spread of her crimes. The priests in her estate started questioning the number of servants and girls in her gynoseum who were dying, even though Urshbet still claimed it was cholera. She supposedly prevented the priests from examining the bodies, allowing them to only look at their faces, which stirred further rumors. The Count's reputation kept her safe, as stated, while alive, and after 1604, Urchbet's own power and money kept that net over her for at least a little while longer. Yeah. The first one to speak against her was a priest named Istvan Megeri. He denounced her both publicly and at the court of Habsburg in Vienna. Now, the rumors were seen as fact that she was this mass murderer and torturer of girls. In 1610, Urchbet fled to the isolated Chechta Castle, now called Katice, in the mountains of Slovakia, 50 miles from Bratislava, hoping that by the time it took for the arrest to happen, the steep roads to the castle would be impassable due to winter storms and snow. She had been in contact with her cousin Gabrielle, the Prince of Transylvania, from 1608 to 1613, in hopes that the Bathory name would have some influence in her defense. A formal investigation was launched in 1610 when King Matthias II asked Torzo to investigate Urshbet. Correspondence between Torzo and the notaries on the case show 52 witness statements collected against her by October 1610 and rose to over 300 by 1611. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Herein lies the Shamalamalan twist to the story. Shamalama ding dong. <laughs> there were political motivations behind the investigation as well, and because of this, some historians argue that she was a victim of conspiracy. There are three arguments that are made that suggest that Urchbet was set up. The first was relating to money, the second and most convincing power, and the third religion. It's possible that her wealth and land ownership, paired with the fact that she was now a widow, made her an extremely lucrative target. Yeah. This is what I was getting at. Yeah, okay. But the financial aspect was an even bigger motive for King Matthias, seeing as the Count had loaned his predecessor a shitload of money. Mm. And so he naturally inherited that debt. Again, and with the debt. <laughs> Just pay the fucking debt, you dumb bitches. Urshfet had gone to his court several times to try and collect. He would get pissy every time she showed up, and so she never got paid back. <sighs> the fact that the debt was null and void after her arrest goes to show the importance of this aspect in the accusations. Besides the fact that the Habsburg Bathory relationship was already a shit show and a half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, if we throw her in a. Well, not really in jail, but I mean, if she's accused of all of this bullshit, it's no longer viable. I don't gotta pay you back. Yeah. Fuck that shit. Pretty much. King Matthias II, a brother to the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II and future Holy Roman Emperor himself, was pronounced King of Hungary in 1608. But the country was still partitioned, and the locals were still trying to break away from Habsburg hegemony and bring back the right to elect whoever they wanted. Because the Habsburgs were pretty much like, fuck all you peasants, we're gods. Yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> your whole family is bred for friggin' royalty and all this bullshit. And huge chimps. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> you only still have to go to other people for fucking financial help. Seriously, again, if it weren't for the fucking Bathories, I really believe that the Habsburgs wouldn't have been able to expand no. or reign as long as they could have. No, not at all. Especially if they were, like, they needed that much money from them. Like, Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> one of the rebellions that had been launched against them was, in fact, at one point, have been led by Archbet's cousin Sigismund. Sigismund's back. Sigismund! <laughs> I don't know why, but you're like my favorite character in the story outside of uh, Archbet. Even though he's like... I, you're mentioned three times so now. So minuscule. Yeah, I think it's because of the name. I just, I really like the name. <laughs> he was later jailed for conspiring against the emperor from 1610 to 1611. Sigismund, no! <laughs> no! And Urchbet had spoken in his favor. Her other cousin, Gabrielle, the prince of Transylvania, was in the meantime trying to expand his territory into the royal Hungarian lands, and she backed him on that as well. And while all this was going on during the investigation into the deaths, Terzo was trying to negotiate peace with Gabrielle and was aware of the impact of removing Urchbet from the political playing field would have on Gabrielle's cause. And religious strife between the Protestants and Catholics were rapidly climbing in the run-up to the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. Oh my god, so this is all happening in the middle of a goddamn shitstorm. Mm-hmm. This is the war that saw the future Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II try and thrust Catholicism into his territories, including Transylvania, oh. and thus fueling the fire for a rebellion from the Protestants of Eastern and Central Europe. So, the differed religions may have jacked up the pressure between the Batteries and the Catholic Habsburgs, but several of Urchbet's relatives, including King Stefan, were Catholic, so the argument yeah. that the frame job was caused by religious strife between the families completely neglects the fact that the first accusation was made against her by a Lutheran minister. Yeah. It would explain why so few came to her defense. However, religious tolerance was more common in Transylvania than the rest of the region. So the religious argument is less than convincing in comparison to the motives of wealth and power. I honestly really think it was a power thing. Mm -hmm. On December 30th, 1610, Terzo arrested Urchbet along with five accomplices, all of them servants, at Chechka Castle for torture and multiple murders that had been carried out between 1590 and 1610. Even though the rumor states that he arrested her while caught in the act, it was later revealed that she was arrested while having an evening meal with guests. <laughs> yeah, in the act of, you know, eating. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Can't even finish my goddamn dinner. Seriously. Terzo stuck to the claim that he caught her red-handed as he wrote in a letter to his wife, Archbet had been arrested before any bodies were discovered, therefore leaving the case open that she was set up. His opening statement that he found a dead girl in the castle and another one that was kept alive as prey threw villagers into a frenzy and thus spreading even more wild rumors about her. Wow. Yeah. But there was no conclusive physical evidence whatsoever that any of these torturous acts had been committed, nor presented in any way at trial. So it's possible that Torzo spun all this shit about dead and wounded victims 
His advantage in this was that he would have gained over her estate's money and rights as guardian of her and her children to further his political career. Yeah. Like you pointed out. And hmm. he could probably fairly easily pay people to come forward with these accusations. Hence why it went from like, what, 50 something to 300 accusations? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that would be fairly easy for him to yeah, just like pay people Yeah, like within a off. month's time. Yeah. It went, it jumped like an extra... 250 Seriously. witnesses. He just went to literally every single door in the fucking village. Just like... <laughs> it's like, do you know the Countess? Yeah, I will pay you to say this about her on paper. Seriously. I know how to write. I'll help you out with that, I guess. <laughs> this is how you spell. <laughs> she did it. <laughs> <laughs> she tortured Billy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Starting in such a shit <laughs> Oh god. Oh, oh, I'm actually starting to feel bad for her. Like, really bad. Yeah, honestly. Oh, god. By January 1611, the case was finally brought to trial. The witness testimonies made up the majority. The problem was, most of them only gave secondhand testimony, so purely hearsay. And these claims were fucking insane. She was said to have kidnapped girls from the ages of 10 to 14, even though they had been sent to her gynecium to be trained. The torture she inflicted, if true, was horrific. Besides the girls she tied up and covered in honey, other girls were made to strip naked, go outside in the middle of winter, and take ice baths. She would cut servants' noses and other body parts with scissors, she would string them up by the hands so tightly that their hands squirted blood, which, holy what shit, the fuck? how tightly do someone's wrists have to be bound for their hands to literally start leaking blood? Like, mm. what the fuck? She would bite the breasts and genitals of the girls. She supposedly incorporated cannibalism into the torture. Oh my goodness. She would make them take boiling hot baths full of stinging nettles or whip them with them until her their flesh fell off. So for those that don't know, stinging nettles are a plant, like a regular green plant, that have fine hairs on them with chemicals containing formic acid. So anyone that comes into contact with them is gonna have a bad time. <laughs> like I, I've been in, I had the misfortune of touching them before, and it does. It like it leaves a rash. It oh, feels like yeah. your skin's on fire. It's terrible. Oh, I know. I actually went and harvested nettles. Oh God, I, I've done that a few times because I need them for certain things. And it sucks, but... It does. Even if you have gloves, sometimes it'll go yeah. right through the fucking gloves. Oh, really? Cause yeah. I was just going to suggest gloves, but damn. Well, like, maybe if you had the thicker garden gloves. I had, like, a thin pair of gloves, so it wasn't, like, reinforced meant for that. Yeah. So, but still... But, yeah. No, it's... it's but awful. with that, being whipped with that shit, or made to bathe with it, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Other things were she strangled a servant to death with a silk scarf, which apparently was a Turkish method of taking someone out. So, irony! Yay! <laughs> oh, and one of my favorites. Because she was accused of dabbling in witchcraft and Satanism, according to the villagers, she would summon... <laughs> I'm sorry. She would summon a cloud of 900 cats what the to fuck? sick on her enemies when she got pissed. Teach me. Teach me this magic. I want a cloud of... Wait a second. 900 cats. 
so like I don't know how that would actually be effective though I mean it'd be <laughs> fucking adorable but like maybe like four or five of those cats might actually do what you want the rest are gonna just Charizard the fuck all over the place and yeah. not give a fuck what you want just roll on the ground with some yarn it's like get him boy yeah <laughs> 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 Just like, what the fuck? Oh my god. I want that spell though. Like fucking 900 cats. Just open field. Cloud. Cloud of cats. I mean, they might be pissed off because they just got dropped from the sky. I mean, I'm assuming. Cloud of cats. I don't know. What the actual fuck? But that is the most ridiculous ass thing I've ever heard. And also, if this person accused her of doing so, you had to have seen it. But if you saw it, more people would have seen that. Yeah. Like, that wouldn't have just been a one-person accusation. I don't know, maybe she did it in one of, like, the private halls in the castle. <laughs> just, like, one of the servants is, like... Like, a whole goddamn room. <laughs> you dusted the vase wrong. All of a sudden you hear, meow. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Oh my god. And, like, oh. how would you know there's 900? That's a lot of fucking cats. They wouldn't even fit in a room. <laughs> Like, we're going way off topic. I'm sorry. I <laughs> Mentally, I will be on this cloud of cat things probably for the next, like, two weeks. It's going to pop up and probably. I'm going to be like, Lori. Lori, clouds of cats. <laughs> God, we got back to this. All right. All right. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fucking cats. Some witnesses and named relatives who died in the gynoseum or reported seeing evidence of torture on the bodies in the graveyards or other unmarked locations. So they're just walking in there going, oh yeah, no, no, I totally saw all the torture all over the people's, like... Dude, if that, the whole cloud of cats thing is effective... Oh my god, Tori! <laughs> no, but like, listen, Stop! hear me out. If, if it was actually effective, then yeah. why wouldn't she do that all the time if she enjoys so much torture? She'd just, like drop cats on people and fucking shred them to pieces. That's a good All the goddamn time. You've got a point. Yeah. Sorry. Alright, I'm done with the cloud of cats thing for now. Probably. (laughs) At least for a little while. Okay. (laughs) Of the first three first-hand testimonies, two of them came from court officials Benedict DeSeo and Jacob uh, Silvasi. Yeah. Again, with these pronunciations, I'm trying so hard. Dude, I'm just glad that you're the one fucking reading this, because I would have butchered the entire goddamn thing. (laughs) You're doing pretty damn good. But they stated that they personally witnessed her torturing and kill the servants and girls. One of the other officials claimed that a servant girl had been found with burns on her hands, but with no explanation of the cause. This was a claim made by several servants that she would regularly badly burn their hands, if she was dissatisfied with their work, but it could have easily been accidental, um, made on their part. So yeah, I mean, who like, knows? grabbing a pot, not thinking about it. Yeah, also depending on, like, how many of them actually claim that she burned them. Yeah. So, we don't know. Uh, the third firsthand came from an injured girl apparently found at the scene named Anna. She said that Urchbet had hurt her and damaged her hand and arm. But her testimony became null and void when found out later that she had been rewarded 50 gold, 15 pounds of wheat, and a small farm in Chechka, and had uh, changed her story twice about how her arm was hurt. 
See, they're paying people off. Yes. She, she went from she like, oh, no, she totally did it to like, no, no, I just, you know, fucked up on the farm and everything's cool. Like, <laughs> the most shocking piece of testimony came from a young servant girl named Susanna that there had been 650 victims in total and that the court official Jacob Silvasi had seen the number written in one of Urshbeth's private journals, but could not confirm this fact. This journal was never revealed to the court, nor did Jacob mention it in any of his testimony. <laughs> so she sounds like a liar. The number of actual victims brought to light during trial was somewhere around between 50 and 60. Still a decent chunk of people, but nowhere near 650. That's a lot of fucking people. However, I mean, if she was actively doing it over a very long period of time, like these accusations suggest, mm -hmm. I could see it getting to be that high of a number, but like not without people noticing sooner. Yeah, unless, like, the last, unless it was only, like, the last 50 or 60 that were noble girls. I mean, yeah, that's still a lot, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. But given that there was never any actual evidence presented nor proved, and most of the witnesses were pretty much gossipers, it's hard to tell whether or not she committed any of these crimes. Even more bullshit came forward when two servants stepped up, uh, Iona Joe, the former wet nurse of Urshbet's children, and her friend Dorothea Sentes. They confessed to being accomplice, uh, accomplices under torture, so in today's standards, that would be stricken from the record because the confessions were taken under extreme duress. Yeah. They were ex executed by means of torture. Both women had their fingers torn off with red-hot pincers and then were burned alive. What the fuck? Yeah. Another servant, uh, Janos Javari, another accomplice, was executed as well, but by far less means of severity, beheading. This was due to his young age and most likely his gender, but they did throw his body on the burning pyre along with the female servants. So, yeah. a fourth servant, Erzi uh, Majorova, was, who was denounced as a witch and was apparently the person that convinced Urchbet to lure young noble women to torture when she ran out, uh, out of locals, was burnt alive. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, all the people that are, like, coming forward so far, well, not so much coming forward, but arrested as accomplices are, like, just being tortured to death just under the pretense that, you know, they may have done something. Yeah. <laughs> a fifth accomplice, an elderly washerwoman named Katarina Benica, was recaptured after escape but was only given a life sentence after it was proved that she had been abused by the other servant women. The sixth and most compelling accomplice, Anna Dar uh, Anna Jesus, Anna Darvulia, had died before the arrests were made, but it was she who the other servants under torture claimed taught Urshbet witchcraft and methods of demonic torture. Any information taken from them, however, is hard to pinpoint as actual truth because of the means that it was taken. That, paired with the fact that Darvulia died before all this, made her easy pickings to point the finger at. It was only later, during the interrogations, that they finally said that Urshbet did it. Meanwhile, Urchbet tried desperately to prove her innocence by asking the mother of one of the dead girls that her daughter had died in the gynecium due to natural causes. When her claims of cholera were dismissed, she got frantic. She started saying that one of the girls in the gynecium killed all the others, 
then blamed all the deaths and injuries on her servants, saying that she was unable to control their level of sadism and that she was even afraid of them. Oh my god. Yeah. So, again, going with the whole, like, was she framed or did she do it? It's it's bouncing back and forth because at this point now it seems like she's really guilty because she's getting into super defensive mode and pointing the finger at everyone else. Yeah, but even in that case, if she feels like there's no other way out or they just won't believe her, yeah. the only option left is to try and point the finger elsewhere and dissuade them. Yeah, but again, with the <clears throat> this status of the servants yeah they would more likely believe her as a noble woman exactly but it's just be if there if there really is a motive of wanting of power and wealth Mm -hmm. they're going to not take her side no matter what exactly yeah but by this point the rumors grew too out of control and the hearsay testimonies only sparked more gossip of course Word got out about the freezing baths and hot tongs used. It was said that she took so much pleasure in the torture that she would use her teeth to tear away the flesh of her victims and bathe in their blood as a beauty routine. And there we are. Yep. And along with the servants implicated, other noble women were getting blamed, such as Anna, Lady Anna Welkier, Lady Judith Pogan, and Lady Zell were said to have lured girls to the gynosseum. Urshbet's youngest daughter, Katzelin, was even accused of participating in one of the torture sessions. Urshbet had also apparently installed a torture chamber in the dungeon of her castle, and yet she was never called to trial. Not once. But do, do they have actual evidence of this torture chamber? Mm-mm, no, evidence of nothing. Yeah, even like, though... That's a whole goddamn room. Yeah, even though two trials had taken place after her arrest to pass judgment on her accomplish, uh, accomplices on January 2nd and 7th in 1611, she was denied her rights as a noblewoman to attend court lawsuits and to receive judgment herself. Hmm. So they never brought her to trial. My guess is because they didn't want to hear her testimony because they didn't want the public to hear the possible truth. Yeah. Instead, her son Paul and her two son sons-in-law Nikola Zhrinsky and Yorgi Drugath negotiated with Torzo to avoid the loss of battery property to the crown. They originally planned to send her to a nunnery, but when the scandal came to light, Urchbet was sentenced to life in house arrest in her castle in Chechta. <laughs> <laughs> so, you get to go and uh, live in your castle. Stay in there. Yeah. Get away from us. King Matthias was, of course, pissed about this outcome. He wanted her to go to trial so he could take over her land and money, but buckled down and agreed to the house arrest. Torzo convinced Matthias that the sentence was more beneficial because it would be detrimental to alliances within the country to the king if she were executed given her status and fame. So he freaked out about the possibility of losing the loyalty of his subject. So he was like, oh yeah, house arrest? Totally cool with that. Oh, and all my debts are canceled because she's a psychopath. (laughs) See? (laughs) The actual terms on how the sentence was carried out have always been kind of hazy at best. It is most widely believed that she was bricked up in one of the towers and starved to death, but that clashes with the fact that she had a bodyguard and she made an escape attempt at one point. (laughs) Regardless of what version is true, doesn't shadow the fact that she spent the remainder of her life in house arrest surrounded by all the lavishes befitting her status and servants attending to her every whim. So she still lived a life of luxury. 
until well, she her still death. lived with servants. Mm-hmm. Who's to say it ever actually stopped if it was really a thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Urchbet died on August 21st, 1614, at the age of 54, in Chechka Castle, while under house arrest. And because she had never been brought to trial, was able to pass on her estates, lands, and possessions to her children. Other than the great loss of the Battery family name, the renunciation of the king's debts to her family, and astronomical amount, mind you, was never repaid. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Because, again, bitches don't pay their debts. Yeah. Her body was reportedly moved from the local cemetery in Chechta after the villagers had a frickin' meltdown over having a mass murderer buried alongside their loved ones, most of which were supposedly killed by her. <laughs> the new location of her body has never been discovered. It's a possibility that she is in the family crypt in Exhet Castle, or at her birth home of Nirbator, or even was just moved to the crypt of Chechka Church. But when that crypt was opened in 1938, it was empty. So her final resting place, along with the extent of her guilt, remains lost. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Over the years, people have tried to find out the extent of her crimes to no avail. The first written accounts of her story weren't written until a hundred years after her death. And the only first-hand evidence used in the trials came from Terzo and his buddies. To make matters worse, the rumors and legends kept piling up. Between the bloodbathing, claims of vampirism started to overshadow the real crimes. The myth of her bathing in the blood be- to regain her youth first appeared in print in Tragica Historia by Jesuit scholar Laszlo Tarachki in 1729, the first written account of her case. The myth had previously been circulated and finally written down by Laszlo. This myth spread like wildfire and stretched all over Europe when Hungarian historian Matthias Bell's account quoted Laszlo's script directly. By 1817, the reports of the trial and crimes were published for the first time, and the tales of her unnatural demonic bloodlust had been set in stone. Although the blood drinking and bathing were never mentioned in the trial, these myths have become the most associated with her throughout history. I don't understand why the whole cat cloud thing hasn't been associated with her. I know. Shit, Tori! Damn it! I I need to mention it, though, because, like, that whole fucking thing, my brain has just been spinning on it. Like, she could have taken everybody out with cats. Yeah! Like, that's a powerful-ass spell. Like, the whole court is like, fuck all of you! Exactly! But again, she was never brought in, though, so there's... Well, I mean, they had to accuse her, and, like, she started fucking trying to dissuade the blame on everybody else. (laughs) I wouldn't be trying to displace the blame there. I would just be casting Cloud of Cats. Fuck all of you. All of your land is mine. I don't give a shit. (laughs) Y'all can just die now. Shred everybody to bits. Meow, motherfucker. Meow. <laughs> does that have? Does that cat have fists? Damn right he does. Meow. <laughs> meow. <laughs> meow. See, meow. Oh my yeah, no, god. No, fucking always. <laughs> like summon nine hundred cats? No, just summon three on after, someone's fucking head. After all this time, just like <laughs> pop up with the fucking cloud again. <laughs> god damn it, Tori. I I I, to... I love you, but damn you. <laughs> Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Holy shit. The rise of her reputation.
reputation coincided with the vampire scares that dominated the early 18th century. Vampires had always been prominent myth in Eastern European folklore since medieval times. However, during the 17th and 18th centuries, famine, disease, and social instability gave rise to new levels of fear and tension, which culminated in a renewed belief in the supernatural and old superstitions. The belief in vampirism was so widespread that the Austro-Hungarian government undertook official reports on vampire outbreaks across Eastern Europe, and scholars wrote academic papers on the phenomenon. Witchcraft, magic, miracles, and possession, literally anything else other than scientific, were to blame for every ailment and misfortune. But it was vampirism that inflamed everyone's imagination. The idea that the dead would rise from their graves to feed on the blood of the living was a very real phobia among Europeans at the time. The first vampires to transcend the world of oral folklore and appear in the pages of literary works appeared in 18th century poetry and soon became the central figures of gothic fiction when John William Polidori published The Vampire in 1819 a short story which had come from the contest between Polidori, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and Percy Shelley. This is the same contest that the novel Frankenstein came from. Oh, that's cool. Because they actually, they all got together one night at like a little soiree that they put together and Mm. challenged each other to write the scariest horror story. Oh, wow. She actually won, Mary Shelley won that with Frankenstein and thus sparked, like she gave birth to science fiction. Oh, shit. With that story. That's amazing. And then... I never knew that. Yeah, and then Polidori, like, started the whole, like, myth of vampires and gothic settings and all this stuff. Like, even before fucking uh, Bram Stoker. Hmm. So, yeah. Intriguing. Yeah. The macabre taste in literature in the 18th and 19th centuries resulted in a character of Urchbet which conceals about as much as it reveals about her. The focus on vampirism and retellings of her story has led to the sexualization and demonization of her. From rumors of lesbianism to the determined tracing of satanic teachings through her family tree and acquaintances. These theories of demonic cults could stem from the fact that the belief in that time women were not capable of violence for the sake of violence. Mm. Or maybe painting her as this monster made it easier to swallow than her actually committing the crimes as a human being. Yeah. So her status and her gender definitely had an impact on her given title, the Blood Countess. The idea of a noblewoman abusing her power to drain the blood of the poor struck a chord with popular European movements. Also, the literary obsession with characterizing Eastern European counts and countesses as vampires in their gothic isolated castles was so common that it ended up growing into a cliche. Yeah. It was also suggested that she was part of the inspiration for Bram Stoker, along with Vlad Tepes, three-time voivoda of Wallachia, even though her association with both Transylvania and her bloody crimes did make a good subject for a vampire, there is no evidence of her being mentioned in Stoker's notes. Mm. The only thing to determine her legend now are the rumors and her given names, the Blood Countess or Countess Dracula. Many films have since been made about her from her representation as a vampire-type character in Necropolis in 1970 to the movie titled Blood Countess in 2015. 
She has been officially labeled by the Guinness Book of World Records since 2018 as the most prolific female serial killer, despite lack of evidence and reliance on hearsay. Huh. The gory, sensational, and often sexualized nature of Urshbet's story has often outweighed the search for evidence. Her work as an educator of young girls, as a countess and supporter of war widows, and her own intellectual achievements have been grossly overshadowed by the rumors of her barbarity that can never be proved or disproved. That's kind of sad, because she did a lot of really good things and whatnot, like the whole tenants not complaining sort of thing. Either they really loved her and she did what she needed to do to keep them safe and housed, or they were terrified of her. Yeah. You know, it's one or the other. But, like, there's a potential there that she was just a really good person. Yeah, and then the other higher-ups were just like, fuck you, you're a widow now, we want all your shit. Yeah, we want your shit and we don't want to have to pay you. Yeah. Because everybody owes way too much shit to you. (laughs) While it's certain that Urchbet lived in a time when rich, powerful, and isolated women were regularly targeted with accusations of witchcraft and demon worship, the extent of her supposed crime seems almost too large to have been entirely made up. This is what I was getting at again earlier with the... It was commonplace for masters to just whale shit. (laughs) on their servants yeah over the stupidest things yeah so it it wouldn't surprise me if she was abusive towards them because that's how she was raised it's like you're supposed to abuse the shit out of your servants until they you know do what you want do what you want yeah so like i can accept that fact but i honestly don't know at this point if yeah if the torture she was really, really yeah because no bodies no proof nothing yeah yeah Assessing Urshbet's battery is difficult because most knowledge of her is based on rumors. On one hand, it seems as though she was set up. No physical evidence of torture or murder was ever proven, and she herself never gave testimony. The trial itself was carried on the back of unreliable witnesses and orchestrated by the two men who would gain the most benefit of her conviction, Torzo and King Matthias, who wanted his debts cleared and to gain control over Transylvania, and Torzo, who wanted her money and estates. Mm -hmm. Everything about her life has been overshadowed by the political motivations surrounding her and her supposed crimes. On the other hand, it seems incontrovertible that Urchbet was unusually cruel to her servants and that too many girls had died in the Gynaceum by accident or by epidemic. So, the more realistic number of uh, 50 victims would make sense, making her a prolific killer rather than a mass murderer of 650 girls as she's portrayed. Yeah. I mean, she didn't get arrested or even (laughs) reprimanded for anything until the daughters of nobles were being picked off. Like, nah, it's totally kosher that you're killing all the servants and peasants. Those aren't people. (laughs) But noble girls? Now you done fucked up, Chica. Yeah. Like, real bad. (laughs) The blood countess myths that grew up around her have proliferated since she was now a blood-drinking, blood-bathing, murdering psychopath from Transylvania. So, obviously vampire! Boom! Mic drop. (laughs) Regardless of the fact that the number of victims she produced will never be uncovered, based on the facts of the case, I have been made to rethink my position on this legend that has fascinated me for 20-plus years. So, the question remains... Was she framed 
Or is she, in fact, a bloodthirsty vampire that could possibly still be wandering the streets of Eastern Europe to this day, seeking out more victims to satiate her undying appetite? After all, her body has never been found. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more terrifying tales of the macabre and supernaturally deranged. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Anchor and pop on over to our Facebook group for updates and to share thoughts on episodes. Later! Later.